When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. So it's great to have Dr. Robert Leahy on the podcast today. Dr. Leahy completed a postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School under the direction of Dr. Aaron Beck, the founder of Cognitive Therapy. Dr. Leahy is the past president of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, past president of the International Association of Cognitive Psychotherapy, past president of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy, director of the American Institute for Cognitive Therapy in New York City, and a clinical professor of psychology and psychiatry at Weill Cornell University Medical School. Dr. Leahy has received the Aaron T. Beck Award for Outstanding Contributions in Cognitive Therapy, and he is author and editor of 25 books, including The Worry Cure, which received critical praise from the New York Times and has been selected by Self Magazine as one of the top eight self-help books of all time. His latest book is called The Jealousy Cure, Learn to Trust, overcome possessiveness, and save your relationship. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Dr. Leahy. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Total pleasure. Wow, that's one of the longer bios I've read. I (laughs) intentionally, I mean, I, you know, selected the bio, but I felt like in coming up with it, it didn't do full justice if I didn't include all those elements to it. I wanted to give the listenership an accurate reflection of all that you do for the field. So thank you for all that you do for the field. Thank you. 
so I wanted to start off by saying personally that your book, The Worry Cure, really helped me a lot during my more anxious moments, particularly about seven, eight years ago. What year did the book come out? It must have been more than seven years ago. Yeah, I think it came out at about two thousand toward the um, end of 2005, 2006. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. That's around <clears throat> the time I was in England and just suffering from generalized anxiety disorder mm-hmm. or whatever they're calling it these days. And and the therapist I was seeing handed me, you know, your book and she used your book in, in her practice and we went through mm-hmm. the workbook and it was incredibly helpful. So thank you. I mean, why, um, you know, that book was an amazing synthesis of lots of research from lots of different psychologists as well as your own research. What spurred mm-hmm. you to write that book before we get into your new one, obviously? Yeah, it's sort of an interesting uh, origin of the book. My wife and I were in Istanbul, Turkey on 9-11-2001, and I was watching the second plane hit the building on CNN. And when we got back to New York, everybody was worried, including me and all my staff. So a few months later, I thought I could either worry like everybody else or I could uh, write a book on worry. And what was interesting is that in terms of contemporary CBT, there really wasn't anything out there that reflected, uh, you know, the research and the theory and the clinical tools and CBT on worry that I thought, you know, would be helpful to people. So that was sort of the motivation to write it. Yeah, it was amazing. There was really nothing like it out there. Yeah. So it really did break some ground. Now there's so many books on meditation and how that yeah. cures your anxiety. But I think your book went a bit deeper. Than, it's not just saying mm-hmm. just meditation. It's saying there are right. all these yeah. kinds of yep. various things. So I want to um, back up a second. So I noticed that you did your PhD at Yale. Who did you study with at Yale? Well, I studied with a number of people. I studied in, with uh, Edward Ziegler, with Bill Kesson, yeah. Irving Child, Tom Achenbach, a whole bunch of people. So, yeah, I have a pretty general background through a lot of different areas, which I try to integrate in my writing. I think a lot of the work that people do in clinical psych often does not reflect the research and theory from other areas of psychology. So, you know, for example, there's a lot of research on social cognition and from social psychology, there's a lot of research on cognitive processes that affect decision-making that, you know, people in cognitive behavior therapy often don't seem to uh, talk about and to integrate into their work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, it's so interesting that you mentioned Ed Ziegler. I did my PhD at Yale as well, and he was there and I found out, you know, he's still kicking. This guy I know. He's amazing. Um, this guy is like spans <laughs> how many generations of students. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he's he's probably been at Yale since maybe the late fifties. I don't know. He's been there for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, how's your work informed by like developmental policy, for instance? Well, I don't know about policy, but my work just development uh, in general, yeah. Yeah. I mean looking at for example, I'm I'm interested in how people how people learn about emotion and you know the kind of uh, rules they have about emotion. You know which emotions are okay. How do you express emotions? How families teach people about emotion? I've certainly moved away from a from a developmental you know, orientation that Ziegler and Achenbach and Susan Harder helped me understand back many years ago. Fair enough, but you know they planted some seeds. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, actually, what's interesting to me is that I was there was a time I was very much interested in Piaget's approach, you know, the child construction of reality, whatever it is. I thought that Beck's work was kind of very much in the Piagetian tradition. 
you know, looking at uh, the individual's construction of depression and anxiety, and, you know, how people's thought processes affected what they felt and what they did. And so when I got interested in the issue of jealousy, I thought, well, let's, let me take a look at how the jealous person constructs the world. You know, what are the assumptions they have? How do they process information? What are their rules for themselves and other people? So I guess that sort of constructivist model has influenced my thinking in, in terms of cognitive therapy, cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah, I can certainly see that. And I'm thinking of his you know, ideas of accommodation seem relevant as well mm -hmm. for some reason. You know, right. in terms of the importance of kind of having to adapt and change your cognitive structures, sometimes radically, sometimes are, you know, I like if I have a really good meditation session, I find it fascinating that when I open my eyes, the whole world just looks different than it did 10 minutes ago. Right, exactly. What's that exactly. all about? <laughs> How is that possible? Right. I find it so fascinating phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing that's interesting is that if you get in the head of somebody who's anxious, a lot of their anxiety makes sense. In other words, if you adapt the assumptions that the anxious person has and you collect information in the manner in which they collect information, it almost logically follows that things are going to be catastrophic. The cognitive approach, in a way, is, is, is a very much an empathetic cognitive strategy to try to understand how things make sense, how does hopelessness make sense, how does suicide make sense, and how to make sense of the alternative. Yeah, the uh, jealous person uh, may start off with some assumptions that people can't be trusted, that people are going to betray them, and that they have to constantly be hypervigilant, and that if anything bad happens, then it means the relationship's going to fall apart. So if you approach any intimate relationship with those assumptions, you're going to probably end up being jealous and uh, distrustful. They're like, use the word assumptions, they're also like their worldviews, or they're like their beliefs. They're, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm trying to think of what, what they really are. They're these kind of like beliefs that we've internalized through lots of, you know, interaction of processes. So, yeah, but you're absolutely spot on. And changing those beliefs can literally change our outcomes of our relationships. And the linkage, the commonality there between your worry cure book and your jealousy cure, I mean, it's a lot of parallels and some overlap in terms of right. this sort of non-judgmental acceptance, so to speak, of yeah. the situation seem to be in common across both books. This could be a whole, like, really famous series, like Chicken Soup for the Soul. I mean, you could just go, you, every year you could have a different cure. Like, the sexual cure could be the next one. That would sell a lot of, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I began thinking about the you know, jealousy issue, there's a number of patients who uh, tend to struggle with jealousy. And I thought, gee, you see, is there something I can recommend? And I couldn't think of anything I could recommend to read that, you know, from a from a contemporary CBT approach. And then I began looking at the research. I mean, there is research by evolutionary psychologists like David Buss and other people mm -hmm. on jealousy. There's research on uh, what, what factors make people more inclined to be jealous. But in terms of contemporary CBT, there really was very little out there, if anything. I mean, there were kind of somewhat naive approaches that you know, sort of equated jealousy with uh, low self-esteem. And it's not really clearly related to low self-esteem. You could have high self-esteem and feel jealous. Like you can think, no one can treat me that way. And so you can be assertive because you're feeling jealous. But there really wasn't anything out there. And I think, I think it was like a blind spot. And there are certain kinds of emotions, 
Scott, that I think you know people kill people over, or uh, oh, yeah. they really have difficulty with, and you know, like emotions like jealousy or envy, or ambivalence or boredom or resentment or the desire for revenge. And there's very little in the CBT field that addresses these kinds of emotions that people are told they should not feel that way. My view is that all emotions have evolved because they're useful in certain contexts. And jealousy is one of those emotions that, from an evolutionary point of view, is quite useful. Oh, that's so interesting. So is it still useful from a proximal point of view? Like, you're not advocating to get rid of jealousy completely, right? You know, I think that it's unrealistic to think that people are going to have happy emotions all the time, that they're going to feel good all the time. My uh, old friend uh, David Burns wrote an excellent book called Feeling Good. I'd like to write a book called Feeling Everything, which mm. I think is kind of reflects the reality of human existence, that we're going to go through life, we're going to have feelings like envy, where we think that other people are getting ahead, feeling like jealousy, that people are a threat to our relationship. We're going to have feelings of boredom, intense anger, shame, guilt, and all these emotions. And to sort of tell people, I'm not saying anybody is saying that, I'm not saying that, that CBT says you shouldn't have these emotions. But a lot of times when people have these emotions, other people say, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. And that's invalidating, and then it makes people feel bad about having a, an emotion that doesn't feel good. It's like feeling bad about feeling bad. Yeah, and the whole shoulds just should be taken out of the vocabulary, everyone's mental lexicon, right? Right. Well, I think... <laughs> I just Did you hear what I just said? I just said I, right. the I, words you know, should should right, be taken right, out should of... Should be taken out, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like, my view is that, I mean, some people think, oh, like, shame and guilt, those are really bad emotions. But think about it this way. Let's imagine if you were single and you started dating somebody and she said, gee, I really like you, Scott. You're really terrific. I want to spend a lot of time with you. But I think I should tell you that the module in my brain that allows me to have feelings of shame and guilt is missing. I'm incapable of shame and guilt. I don't think you would trust the person. So these emotions have some adaptive value if you, like if you believe that people you work with would feel guilty or ashamed if they betrayed you, you're more likely to trust them. If someone's good at convincing you that they feel guilty, you're more likely to trust them in the future. Jealousy, if somebody said to you, if you have an intimate relationship, Someone said to you, you know, something you can go out and have sex with anybody you want. I wouldn't be jealous. I don't think you would trust the person. And some people think, you know, some, some men think, oh, I want all that freedom. And it sounds good until you begin thinking, what would it mean if somebody actually said that to you? It would probably mean that they didn't love you, you weren't special to them, and that they wanted freedom to pursue other options. So the emotion of jealousy is one of these disparaged emotions. And, of course, it gets to the extreme. With people. For example, jealousy is the leading cause of homicide in the couples when the man kills the woman. It's overwhelmingly the leading cause. And and so jealousy is a killer, and people kill themselves over jealousy. So obviously it can get extreme, but we don't want to say we want to get rid of jealousy completely. Right. Because jealousy, in a way, is a way of, in a way, taking the temperature. You can have a temperature that's too low or too high. Just going back to the evolutionary approach a second, they make a big ado about sex differences in what they're jealous about, like the content versus cheating right. versus, you know, sexual versus emotional intimacy, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Do you make that distinction right. in your book? Yeah. So 
that's an important distinction. Of course, you know, both men and women are jealous about those things, but women tend to be more jealous about emotional closeness, and men tend to be more jealous about sexual infidelity. And so from an evolutionary point of view, the model is called parental investment theories developed by Robert Trivers at Cambridge back in the 1970s, that the parental investment theory is that the woman always knows the baby is her baby. The man doesn't really know for sure. So it's like, you know, he has the maybe baby. He's not quite sure if that's his, uh, if that's his baby. So the male is very, very threatened by any sexual infidelity of, of the female. Because, you know, he doesn't, his evolutionary adaptation, he's not going to want to protect the, uh, or take care of the genes of offspring that are not his offspring. So, I mean, it, it sounds like a very dark view, but evolution is about competition and about survival. So now the female wants to have the port of the male. And so if the male is directing his emotions toward another female and, uh, and his support and his resources and his protection, then he's not going to be available to take care of the offspring. So it's really about the genetic fitness of uh, the pattern to protect the investment in the, uh, in the genes for the next generation. Yeah, I get the, that distal perspective. But there's huge individual differences in, you know, people who where jealousy mm-hmm. is an issue for them, it, like it's whether it's a hair trigger sort of right. thing for them or not. Attachment style seems to be relevant right. here. Yeah. You know, so like anxious. You know. Yeah. So, you know, what the research shows is exactly that, that individuals who have an anxious attachment style are far more likely to be jealous. But what's also interesting, Scott, is that people differ in terms of how they feel in a close relationship. Some people really want to have a close relationship and some people don't want to have a close relationship. So people who have this sort of distancing in an intimate relationship who don't want to be close are far less likely to be jealous. There's interesting research showing that they actually make a stable, well, long-term relationship, the anxious and the avoidant. Even though there's constantly drama in their relationship, it lasts a long Mm -hmm. time because each one is kind of like what the other person, I don't know. It's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic there when you mix the avoidant with the anxious attachment person. Right, exactly. And I, I've actually seen that. Sure you, have. You, know, yeah. you have. You have, a, let's say in a particular case, I'm thinking of a, a woman who wants a very close relationship and who wants to have constant contact with her partner and a man who values freedom and spontaneity and doesn't want to be tied down. So her approach to try to connect with him and be close to him triggers his desire for autonomy right. and pushes back, which then triggers her jealousy and right. her anxiety. Vice versa, so, yeah. Yeah, so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more, the more she pushes, the more he avoids. But interestingly, the research suggests that kind of relationship works. It works better than an avoidant-avoidant one doesn't, never works. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and it, but, but an anxious, anxious, that works better than even an anxious, anxious one, for instance. Yeah. So it's just interesting to you know think how these can come together. So having a hair trigger for jealousy, is that correlated with a hair trigger for rejection sensitivity? Well, you know, what happens with some people is that they have these triggers. Like if, uh, you know, the trigger could be you're at a party and your partner is talking to somebody else. And that could just suddenly trigger the idea that they're going to chase after that person and leave me. Or the trigger could be retrospective jealousy. It could be your partner is thinking about or talking, rather talking about an experience with a former partner. 
and that can trigger it. And so I think part of it, Scott, is that people who are prone to jealousy often have rules about relationships. And a lot of these are really perfectionistic rules about the way people should be. For example, one rule that people have is that I should be the only person in the world that my partner finds attractive. First, there are several billion people in the world. It's hard to imagine you're the only person (laughs) in the world that's attractive. Or if my partner finds somebody attractive, they're going to leave me. Or if my partner had a good time with somebody else in the past, that means they can never be happy with me. Or that I should be interesting and exciting to my partner all the time. Or I should know everything my partner is thinking. You know, some people equate trust with this sort of like existential merging of two people, which is just so unrealistic. As people push for more and more, you know, demands for certainty and interrogate and control, it drives the other person away. The person pushes back. What's interesting, Scott, is the kind of things that the target of jealousy might say you know, to try to defend herself or himself. You know, let's say, for example, if a man is feeling jealous and the woman says, you know, well, you shouldn't feel that way. You should trust me. You're neurotic. That's your problem. You know, don't bother me. You must have low self-esteem. All of these sort of dismissive and critical and contemptuous statements actually feed into the jealousy because jealousy is about a threat to attachment. So if the man is expressing his jealousy and the partner is rejecting him, that this sort of feeds into his his sense that his attachment's threatened, and then he ups his, uh, his uh, demands for certainty and reassurance, which then leads to the pushback. It's an interesting dynamic uh, to see. One of the problems, I think, that people have in, in their relationship is the difficulty in accepting the emotions that the other person has. So if you keep telling your partner they shouldn't feel jealous, their jealousy is not going to go away. I've never seen somebody say, oh, my partner told me to stop feeling jealous, and my jealousy just disappeared. <laughs> Alternatively, if you validate the person, say, gee, I can really understand that you feel that way. You must feel really connected to me. I feel really flattered that you care enough and value me that much. Uh, that must be a difficult emotion that you're having. You should feel free to talk to me about it. I can accept those feelings, I care about those feelings, I have compassion for you. In other words, if you go into like an attachment, compassion, validation mode with the person who's jealous, that's going to be reassuring in a very emotional, fundamental way. Uh, they still may feel the jealousy, but they also believe that you have room and you're accepting those emotions and that you still respect them. So you're not rejecting. It's, not, it's just like having a baby that's crying and yelling at the baby to stop crying. That never works. If you pick no. up the baby and you soothe the baby, the baby feels that there's a secure place. So in some ways, even though my approach is cognitive behavioral, it's very much very much grounded in attachment theory. That's great. And yeah, they do seem to be such good bedfellows, so to speak. Yeah. There is a uh, – I'm just sort of blanking right now, but there is a, a, a recently developed – training for attachment style for couples to be more sensitive to each other. It's called like emotion-focused therapy or something like that. Have you heard of it? Right, right. You're thinking about Leslie Greenberg's uh, work. I think, I think that's so. what you're thinking about. That, that's emotion-focused therapy, which is good. And also John Gottman's work uh, yeah, is Gottman, also yeah. quite, quite, quite good. I think one of the fundamental things in, in a relationship is the sense that your partner really cares about your feelings. And when a partner expresses the jealousy, 
thing. I really feel jealous and you're flirting with that person. We tend to do when somebody says that, we tend to become defensive and we go on the counterattack, which you know it may be a perfectly human thing to do, but it, what it does is it feeds right into the jealousy because it makes a person feel more insecure. We have a very hard time normalizing and validating emotions that a person has when we feel the person's angry with us. We want to win. We want to defeat them. We want to you know, even humiliate them. And that just makes the jealousy and the insecurity worse. David Buss, in one of his books, describes research where they found that couples where they had issues about jealousy were more likely to stay together five years later. And if it stands to reason, really? because, yeah, because jealousy indicates you care enough. You know, right. like if you think about people who have very superficial relations, you know, just shallow one night stand, you know, go right. on Tinder, whatever, those don't lend themselves to a jealousy. So, you know, when people feel they have something invested and they care enough, they're more likely to express their uh, jealousy. And sometimes people will intentionally try to get the partner to feel jealous, to sort of test them out. Do they care enough? You know, do they care enough to be jealous? And, you know, if the person does, you know, person, oh, you can do whatever you want. I don't care. You know, the person begins thinking, oh, you know, maybe he's not that into me. Maybe he doesn't care that much about me. Wow. You know, Stephen Pinker in How the Mind Works refers to love as a doomsday device. I wonder if jealousy is a doomsday device as well to help, you know, kind of, uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like evolved to like as a binder, as a way of protection, if like someone like the hot guy next door moves in, you know, that you don't just yeah. move on to them. Right. Yeah. So there's, you know, I think, I think, I think the reality is that we do live in a competitive world. And, you know, as a result, I think one of the most universal emotions that really hasn't been examined that well in the cognitive behavioral field is the feeling of ambivalence. And, you know, I've seen so many people who struggle with ambivalence because they think they should not be ambivalent. And, you know, like some people have this kind of idealized view of, of love that it should be like Romeo and Juliet. And if you think about like, when you're 15 years old in high school, you read Romeo and Juliet and say, oh my God, isn't that wonderful? How wonderful they're in love. It's all idealized. It's so perfect and everything. But can you imagine, like, if you and I sat down and we wrote a television script for the Romeo and Juliet television series, that would be about Romeo and we Juliet when they're in their 40s living in Queens, New York, and they're both quite a bit overweight, and they're a little bit pissed off at each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, you're yeah. not going to have this idealized romance right. continuing on for more than a couple of weeks, probably. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, dopamine gets saturated no matter what it is eventually. You know? yeah. yeah, and and so what, what happens, I think, you know, I, th I think people have a, you know, I think a lot of people have this kind of emotional perfectionism. Like, uh, I should feel excited all the time. My partner should never be attracted to anybody else. and Everything should go really well. If it doesn't, it's going to fall apart. As opposed to thinking that I had a patient years ago who said, he was divorced and was starting a relationship with somebody who was a bit rocky. And he says, so, Bob, what's the key to a good long-term relationship? I said, well, let me tell you, you know, uh, about 10 years ago, I used to do a lot of windsurfing. I was down in the Virgin Islands of St. John. And I went over to Coral Bay to see Mike, who was the windsurf hot dog on the island. And I said to Mike, I said, Mike, what's the key to windsurfing and heavy waves and heavy wind? 
And he said, Bob, it's rock and roll and commit to the action. And I said to my patient, that's the key to a long-term relationship. <laughs> rock and roll and commit to the action. And it's, if, you, if you get an image like of a windsurfer with waves going up and down and the wind and you're kind of leaning back and pulling the boom, you know, that's what it is. You've got to be able to go rock and roll, ups and downs, and just commit to the action. It's not going to be a smooth ride some of the time. Uh, I like that. And I think acknowledging and normalizing that you and your partner may see other people and find them attractive and interesting or have memories, that that's normal. That doesn't mean that everything is falling apart and that you can accept that that's the case, but focus on committing to the action, making the relationship as good as it can be. Yeah, that seems like really sensible advice. You know, it just dawned on me, though, that like we never even defined what jealousy is. So let's like back up a second. And if you could define jealousy and how it's different from envy, that would be great. Okay. So jealousy, you know, jealousy is usually a very intense, passionate emotion. It actually is derived from the Greek word for zeal, Z-E-A-L, zealous. And it reflects an intense, passionate emotion that includes anger and anxiety. And it's always about three people. It's always about the two people having the primary relationship and a threat from a, an imagined threat from a third person. So you can have jealousy in a romantic relationship. You can have jealousy with friends. Maybe your friend's spending more, spending more time with, with Bill than with Scott. You can have jealousy with coworkers. Even animals, they've done research on animals and they found like owners of animals, you know, how jealous is your animal? And the, <laughs> animals, the animals who show the most jealousy are dogs, second huh. are horses, and cats are a little bit behind. Cats are a bit more self-contained, and they're kind of cool cats. So they, huh. <laughs> yeah. Show, you know, but babies show jealousy. One one study showed it was like eight-month-old babies and their mothers. They had the mother either play with an inanimate object or play with another baby. And when the infant saw the mom playing with another baby, the infant expressed distress. So you have jealousy at eight months old. You have jealousy in cats and dogs, and horses. You have jealousy with friends. You have jealousy with coworkers, and it's universal. You have jealousy with friends, romantic relationships, uh, siblings, step parents. Animals show jealousy. Where dogs are the most likely to be jealous. Uh, horses second, cats third, and even eight-month-old babies show jealousy when their mother is playing with another baby versus an inanimate object. So jealousy is a, an emotion that you have in lots of different kinds of relationships, species, and ages. Envy. Envy is more about somebody getting ahead in the dominance hierarchy or status or power, whatever. So you might be envious of like, you know, somebody who gets advanced over you at work or publishes something that gets more attention or has qualities that you wish you had. And what we tend to be envious of, and it doesn't involve three people necessarily. So Envy is about somebody who's, who's, who's getting hit, not necessarily a threat to your, to your attachment relationship. We tend to envy people who are most relevant to our comparison level. So I'm not going to be envious of somebody who's like a world-class skier because I'd be lucky if I could ski 10 feet. <laughs> so, wait, wait, wait. But yeah. you could be jealous of their wealth or whatever, right? Can I, you be I, jealous? Might be I might be envious of their wealth, but I'm not sitting here thinking that, oh, they don't deserve that. You know? Gotcha. But we tend to have our little comparison group, our little, our little status domain, you know. Like if you go to a conference 
you go to an academic conference, Scott. Oh, they're the worst. You're going, you're going to see an epidemic of jealousy. Yeah, it's <laughs> the worst. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> academics are just ter- terrible. And I, I kind of wonder if maybe that's one of the reasons why it hasn't gotten as much attention. You know, keep in mind, these are emotions people kill people over. This is not like, you know, yeah. like picking my fingers or something. This is an emotion people kill other people over or kill themselves over. People kill over envy. Now, on the other hand, there's also an upside to envy. Like Bertrand Russell said, without envy, we would not have democracy. So you can think about envy as, as a concern about unfair distribution or unfair reward. So if somebody you know, has you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars that we view as undeserving and a lot of these other people are poor, that kind of envy might be viewed as social justice. So, in fact, uh, Jonathan Rawls, uh, uh, who's with Harvard, leading a legal scholar, actually viewed envy as an underlying emotion for distributive justice. So envy, uh-huh. envy is an important emotion. And envy also teaches us who's getting ahead and who should we emulate. So you, you can think of envy as, well, you know, that person got ahead over here. What did they do? Maybe I can do it. And so envy can be uh, a motivational role model for the people and get us to pay attention and to emulate characteristics that are rewarded. So again, uh, like I've had many patients who are envious, I normalize envy and look at envy as it's an emotion that you have. And many people feel ashamed about it. They feel like, what's wrong with me that I have the envy? As opposed to normalize it, validate it understand that that's how people feel, that people don't talk about envy. Very, very few people say, gee, I'm really envious of that person who succeeded, and I want them to fail so I can feel good. I mean, very few people acknowledge their schadenfreude, you know, but everybody knows it's there. And it's very powerful. People will undermine people that they feel competitive with. So it's something that we have to bring out of the shadows and be able to talk about and normalize and figure out how we can use it, if at all, in a constructive way. Well, you seem like a, a terrific clinical psychologist, and I love the idea of normalizing and having people accept the size of themselves. But certainly that's not the same thing as saying that their life would be optimal well-being with it remaining. Right. I mean, I think we could probably learn to not be so reactive to it, right? Yeah. I mean, you can think of, like, just take envy. You can take envy and think of it as, okay, I envy this uh, person who is doing more than I'm doing and getting more recognition. So, okay, so is there something positive that I can move that toward? And maybe I can move that toward clarifying my goals. I could think about that as developing my motivation. I could use the envy to expand my curiosity. I could also think about my envy. If I envy this person's achieving these goals, I can look at what I would call my life portfolio, all the things in my life that I have that are meaningful to me. So even if somebody is ahead on this thing, I do have many things in my life that have meaning. So, you know, ironically, in a way, you, you can take this sort of darker kind of emotion, envy, hmm. and you can transform it into some of the positive uh, psychology uh, you know, domains that you're particularly interested in, Scott. Love that. I absolutely love that. Okay, so let's just talk about some, like, practical strategies that we, many of our listeners might be on the edge of their seat waiting for this moment. If you could just kind of give some techniques without obviously giving it all away because we want people to buy your book. But, you know, what are some ways people can cope with their jealousy? Well, let's return back to right. jealousy for a second. I think in terms of practical strategy, the first thing I think is to normalize 
that you're not a crazy person because you're jealous. So I would normalize the jealousy. I would validate the difficulty in having the emotions. Uh, I would try to develop some compassion toward yourself, uh, struggling with a difficult emotion. I would ask you to think about the distinction between your jealous feelings and your jealous behaviors. So the coping behaviors are often what get people in trouble, like the interrogating, the accusation, the all the control strategies that people use uh, with their partner, you know, stalking, threatening, and all that. I would try to step away from the control strategies, see if you can give those up for a few weeks. I would accept the idea that you're feeling jealous rather than think you have to get rid of the jealous, jealous feelings. One thing I ask people to do is, to, you know, you're having all these intrusive jealousy thoughts 24 hours a day, and it's just driving you crazy. Set aside an appointment with your jealousy thoughts. So let's say between 2 and 2.30 in the afternoon is going to be your jealousy time. And during that time, you focus on your jealousy thoughts. So one way of viewing it is that like at 10 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock at night, you have some jealousy thoughts. Write them down. Put them off to 2 o'clock in the afternoon and then focus on them. And what people find is that the intensity of their jealousy usually subsides during the course of the day. And so they're not as upset about the jealousy. They begin feeling they have more control, that they just because a jealousy thought comes to their head, they don't have to be hijacked by it. So during that jealousy time, there are several things you can do. One is you can ask yourself, you know, are my thoughts really rational? So, for example, am I engaged in mind reading? Am I jumping to conclusions? Am I taking things too personally? Do I have unrealistic expectations? Would my partner have the same reasons to be jealous of me. You know, sometimes you think, oh, you know, I'm jealous of my partner. Well, maybe they have a good reason to be jealous of you too. Is it in my interest to interrogate my partner or threaten my partner? Will that drive them away? Is there some strategy that we can use to develop some understanding about what kinds of behavior is okay for both of us? In other words, there, you may need to have kind of like a, an understanding that you have to clarify for the two of you. You can also have ground rules for what the two of you do when one person's jealous. So you go to a party and if your partner says, gee, I'm feeling jealous, what is she going to do? What should she? Can she tell you that you're jealous? Is that going to be okay? Do you think that you have to get her to stop feeling that way or insult her? So you need to develop some kind of rules for accepting and discussing the jealousy without criticizing and suppressing the emotions the person has. Another technique I use, and it sounds counterintuitive, is what's called the boredom technique. So I had, for example, I had this one patient who was feeling very jealous about his wife going away on business trips, and he had the thought, my wife could be unfaithful to me. And of course, that's always true. You can't prove that she cannot be unfaithful. So he had to accept, he had to get used to the thought that it's possible that his wife could be unfaithful to me. He was equating the thought that it's possible my wife could be unfaithful with the idea that she would be unfaithful. Those are two different things. You know, it's possible I could win the lottery, but it's not a fact that I'm going to win the lottery. So I had him repeat the thought literally hundreds of times. Like he would sit at home and repeat silently, it's always possible my wife could be unfaithful to me. And that thought initially became anxiety-provoking. But after a few minutes, the thought became boring. You know, he just habituated to it. So there are a whole lot of techniques that I describe in the jealousy cure. You don't have to feel helpless 
when you have intrusive thoughts. There are a lot of things that you can do. I mean, personally, you had that exercise in the word cure with uh, kind of put it aside, kind of take a step back. Mm -hmm. And that was so helpful for me. And it's so amazing how like the day, just the next day, you can like totally not care at all about something that you're like, oh my God, this is the most important thing ever, you know, in the moment. It's just so so weird. So So weird. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a good example of, I think one of the goals in life sometimes is to develop the capacity of indifference. I mean, you might say that's kind of a Zen goal, but it's just a, it's a matter of just, you know, wisdom. And one way of thinking about it is, what are the things that used to bother me like five years ago or five months ago, even, you know, whatever. And so noticing that your emotions can change and that you could eventually become indifferent. I think the other thing that's important, Scott, is that sometimes jealousy is a, a warning that the relationship is at risk. So developing kind of a golden parachute that if this relationship didn't work out, I would be able to survive. So building your support network, you know, looking at your skill set, recognizing that you had a life before this relationship. So th- there are a lot of techniques that people can use to kind of put the jealousy in perspective, but telling yourself not to be jealous or telling somebody that they're neurotic only makes you feel worse. Yeah, I think that was a, a great aspect of your book is putting jealousy in perspective. And that seems to just be a really um, general sort of helpful principle for a lot of people that come to see therapy is, you know, almost every problem that someone presents in therapy, helping the patient put it in perspective seems to be helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, look, yeah, I just sure. want to thank you so much for coming and chatting with me today on the Psychology Podcast and for your great work in the field. Well, Scott, it's been a real pleasure. And, you know, as a friend of mine once said to me when I was writing the Worry Cure book years ago, he said, you know, if the book helps one person, it's been worth it. And I'm glad to hear it helped you. It did. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and the thing like you, ne- like you never know when you write something and somebody you may have never talked to, you know, they read it and they feel better. It helps them get through better. That's what you do. That's what I do. And we're very fortunate to be able to do what we do, helping people have more meaningful lives. We're incredibly fortunate. And something that I, I just think it's so interesting to think that, and I don't talk about this much on the show. I don't think I ever have how I used to have very intense anxiety about seven years ago. And I just think about how much I've grown and changed. And just to think that it's possible to really grow. I mean, you know, even just a little like boarding an airplane used to be the most catastrophic anxiety experience for me. And I had to take medicine, et cetera. Now it's like no big deal. I'm like, whatever, you know, I'm boarding an airplane. I don't even think about it now. So just knowing that we can undergo so cool. such personal transformation, yeah. I think just makes, motivates me want to help people more because it's like, yeah. I know it's possible, you know? So anyway, thanks again. It's been yeah. great chatting with you. Thank you so much, Scott. You have a great week and uh, hope to talk to you sometime again. Me too. Take me care. Too. You too. Be well. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.